The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. So, recently, I have attempted, I am trying to take up the sport of golf. My wife golfed in high school, and so we would go on dates every now and then where we'd go to the driving range and hit a few balls. But this summer has really been the first time that I have graduated from the driving range to the actual golf course. And the golf course is a lot different than the driving range. There's a lot of pressures that are absent on the range that are there on the course. For example, you have other players. You have a scorecard. You have a time slot. But I think probably the biggest difference between a driving range and a golf course is at a driving range, if you hit a poor shot, all you do is just roll out another ball and swing away. But when you're on a golf course, that shot matters. You get one chance, one shot to hit the ball the way you want to. Everything has to be perfect. Foot placement, eye on the ball, good backswing, and you want to make sure that you actually make contact with the ball. And as you stand there, no matter how many practice swings you take, sizing up that little white ball, there is a ton of pressure to not screw up your shot. But these moments, these little moments of pressure are not limited to golf. Um, they show up in our lives all the time. There's a popular Eminem song out there, the rapper, not the candy, um, that's called Lose Yourself. In that song, he says, look, if you had one shot or one opportunity to seize everything you wanted in one moment, would you capture it or just let it slip? You only get one shot. Do not miss your chance to blow. This opportunity comes once in a lifetime. Now, this song resonates with people. People enjoy this song because they identify with it. Life often can feel like it can be reduced to just a very few moments, key moments, and it is up to you to either seize the opportunity or watch it slip away. Maybe you're here today and you feel like you're waiting, that you have been waiting for your moment. Or maybe you feel like your moment already came and you messed it up in some way. You screwed up and now it's all downhill from here. Today, we are going to be looking at Genesis 41. And Genesis 41 is the chapter of Joseph's moment. For the last 13 years in Joseph's life, his life has been in the dumps. His life has been awful. He was sold into slavery. He was forced into a life of servanthood. He was thrown into prison, and then he was forgotten. Until, finally, this life-changing opportunity presents itself in Genesis 41. So go ahead and turn with me to Genesis 41. That's on page 34 in the Red Bible and 69 in the Children's Bible. And we are going to be taking a look at Joseph's one shot. After two whole years... Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk, and behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. 
and the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night. And he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation, a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing in one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears, and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, and let him set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years, and let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah and he gave him in marriage Aseneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered into the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went to all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Aseneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this passage and this story in the life of Joseph. And God, as we look at it more closely, I ask that we would learn from it, that we would learn about how we are to respond to you, that we would learn about who you are, and that we would understand what you are doing in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Whew, long passage. Finally, Joseph has his moment. He's got his moment to shine. And as he stands before Pharaoh, his one shot, what does he do? He knocks it out of the park. But it's not because of Joseph's greatness. It's because of God's greatness. And as Christians, when we think about our moments, these key moments, our shot, the way that we should view them is not the way that it's presented an imminent song. You see, we need to recognize, first off, as Christians, that there is only one true God. We need to respond faithfully to that God, and then we need to cling to and wait for the promises that God has given us. Now, the Egyptians had many gods, and as they looked to those gods for guidance and direction, they were constantly going to them. And in verses 1 through 8, we actually meet one of those gods in particular that's struggling to get a good night's sleep. You see, Pharaoh in those days was considered to be a god himself. He was the ultimate authority over all of Egypt. 
And his word was not only final, but actually carried divine weight. And yet, this Egyptian god was experiencing dreams that were so troubling that they actually woke him up. And in verse 8, it says that his spirit was troubled. Now, that line doesn't really give full justice to just how vexed, just how perplexed Pharaoh was. Because if you think about it, a deity, a god, should not need interpreters to help him out in understanding his nightmares. But Pharaoh doesn't only turn to a royal magician or interpreter or two. It says that he actually summoned all of the magicians and all of the wise men of Egypt. And when they are unable to help, Pharaoh then goes to a Hebrew prisoner. He calls a Hebrew prisoner into his presence to ask for help. Verse 14 emphasizes that he asks for him to be brought very quickly. Pharaoh is very concerned. He is very upset. And so he brings, makes sure that there is zero delay in getting Joseph into his throne room. Now consider for a moment the comparison that's being set up here. On the one hand, we have the mighty Pharaoh, ruler of all of Egypt, a god amongst men. And he is asking a lowly, imprisoned Hebrew servant for help. Pharaoh has no clue what is going to happen in his own land, the land over which he supposedly reigns. Now Moses, who is the writer, the author of Genesis, is demonstrating to us the weakness of the gods of this world. And he is contrasting them with the gods of Joseph. You see, the true God not only knows and reveals the future, but is actually the one who ordains the future. In verse 25, Joseph tells Pharaoh that God has revealed what he is about to do. So on the one hand, we have this God who can't even sleep through the night. And on the other, we are presented with the true God who not only knows the future, but actually makes it happen. Now, some of you may be asking yourself, why is he making such a big deal out of the fact that there is only one true God? We don't live in ancient Egypt we don't worship a whole bunch of different gods. Nobody is bowing down to idols. Most people do not mistake the president for some sort of divine figure. And that's true. I mean, maybe we don't exactly live in a culture that's the same as Egypt. But have any of you ventured into the religion section at Barnes & Noble lately? I did that this week. And I came across a, a few interesting books. Um, one of them was titled God. A story of revelation. And in the description, which should be on the screen, it says, No one can say that God was revealed in one consistent shape, delivering one consistent message. Quite the opposite. Hmm. Interesting. There was another book that I came across that was titled, God Revised. I think the title kind of explains enough. I, I did not know that God was revisable, but apparently he is. We live in a culture that does not believe in one true God. There are many gods in our culture. And as you look at just a simple book section, you will see many of these gods on display. You know, I'm guessing that most of you here believe that there's only one true God. But we live amongst the people who reject that claim. And that culture, whether we like it or not, affects us. We know that it affects us 
Every single time when we find ourselves in that moment where you have that shock, that key moment that comes up, and you find yourself thinking more in line with Eminem than the words of Joseph. He says, it's not in me, but God who will give the answer. We have one true God, and we need to recognize that. And when we do recognize that, we have to respond. It's not enough simply to recognize that there is one true God who is sovereign over all things. We have to actually faithfully respond to that truth, to that understanding. And that is exactly what Joseph does in this chapter. I can't imagine how badly Joseph wanted to get out of his current circumstances. When you think about it, two years, two years had gone by since he had asked the cupbearer for assistance. Two years of imprisonment knowing that the last decade of his life was the very definition of unfair. I mean, he had traveled at the request of his father all the way to his brothers, and what happened? He was sold into slavery. And then he had resisted the advances of a married woman, and he ended up in prison. He'd even interpreted the dreams of two Egyptian officers only to be forgotten about. And now he finally had this opportunity. Joseph was going to go stand before Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all of Egypt, needed Joseph. Pharaoh needed a particular skill set that God had given to Joseph alone. He was the only one in all of Egypt that could interpret these dreams. Would you have been tempted to let Pharaoh believe that you were an invaluable commodity? That you were the only one with the power to interpret? Would you be tempted to stipulate some sort of terms prior to interpreting the dreams? To take advantage of the, the leverage that you currently had, that you'd been provided with? I know I would have. After years and years of suffering, who wouldn't be tempted to say, finally, I can get mine? Especially when the last time that you interpreted a dream, you were forgotten about. You were taken advantage of. So what does Joseph do? How does he respond? In verse 16 and 25, it makes it clear that he himself is not able to interpret dreams. It is not from him. He is not some magical person. In fact, it is God who is empowering him. It is from God that these interpretations are coming. Joseph doesn't lay out terms. He doesn't take the credit. Instead, Joseph demonstrates an absolute trust in the sovereign God. He demonstrates absolute trust that God is in control. And in doing so, Joseph brings glory to God. God is glorified because of that. And verses 38 and 39 show us that that's what happened because Pharaoh gets the message. It is not Joseph who is all-powerful, but it is God who has revealed these things to Joseph through his spirit. Joseph trusts in the Lord. He trusts that the Lord is able to correctly interpret the dreams, and he trusts that the Lord has his back. Now, in this dream, he tells him that it's going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. But then what does he do? He goes on, and, and he starts giving Pharaoh advice. I mean, Pharaoh never asked him for advice. He just said, interpret the dream. But he has the nerve to actually go forth and tell Pharaoh what to do about the dream. In verses 33 through 36, Joseph tells Pharaoh basically that he needs to set up a welfare system for the people, taxing them 20% of all the produce to create this backup supply for the coming famine. 
Now, what type of person has the confidence to tell the overseer, the ruler, the man in charge of all of Egypt, that, by the way, you're not sufficient to run your own country? In fact, you need to appoint a man to be in charge of the land, a man of wisdom and discernment, O Pharaoh. Who does that? Someone who has absolute faith in what God has revealed to him. Somebody who has absolute trust in the Lord. See, God's revelation, when he reveals things to us, it always requires a response from us. Now, one theme that we see running throughout all of Joseph's life is the idea of the sovereignty of God. And we couch it in different ways. I mean, we might say the timing of God or the providence of God, the wonderful plan of God. But it all boils down to the Lord being in complete control. And there's this temptation in us to think that, all right, if the Lord is sovereign over all things, then I don't need to worry about how I respond because I'm not in control. God is. But that is not how the Bible presents it. And if you turn with me, or actually look on the screen, at Jeremiah 18, it really illustrates this principle. Jeremiah 18, starting in 1, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, this is the passage where Paul draws from to write Romans 9, you know, that great famous chapter on God's sovereignty. We clearly see in this that God is sovereign and that he acts according to his own will, that he is the one in control. And yet, If we keep on going in verses 7 through 10, it says, If at any time I, God, declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. So you see, the way that a nation, that a people respond to God's sovereignty actually changes things. The people of God are not simply pawns in this giant game of chess. We are actually called to respond. In the midst of God's sovereignty, we are supposed to respond. But what does a faithful response look like? It it looks like different things in different situations. Sometimes the way that we are called to respond to what God has revealed to us is obvious. I was um, sightseeing with a family a few weeks ago, and one of their children ran ahead of the group. And the dad was calling out to him to, don't get too far ahead. And the kid was acting like he couldn't hear a single thing his dad was saying. And then he used his full name, you know, the first, middle, last. And all of a sudden... That kid stopped on a dime. His head whipped around like it was on a rope. All of a sudden, I mean, it was magical. His hearing was restored. The response, the proper response was clear. 
But then there are other times when a faithful response is not so clear, such as when you only have so many resources but many missionaries that are asking for your support and you're wondering, how should I do this? It's, it's not necessarily clear. In Joseph's case, a faithful response meant giving God the credit and developing a plan in response to that revelation and then executing that plan. But faithfulness may look different for you and your situation. When your moment of opportunity, when your shot arrives, I can't say necessarily what faithfulness looks like, but I can say that what doesn't change is the type of heart that responds to God. The correct heart that responds to God is a heart that recognizes that God is the true God. A heart that trusts in God's goodness and that he is in control. A heart that seeks God's glory and not its own. Joseph responds with faith. And in doing so, he brings glory to God. And God blesses him for it. Joseph goes from prisoner to the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Joseph, a Hebrew, is fully integrated into the Egyptian royal court. He's given new clothes. He is given a new name. He is given a wife from a prominent Egyptian family. He is fully integrated into the court. He receives power, wealth, and family. You see, God blesses those who give him the glory in those key moments of their life. But I have to be careful here. Because what I do not want you to hear me say is that if you give glory to God, that if you respond faithfully, that your life will be easy. I do not want you to hear me saying this health and wealth gospel because faithfulness to God does not mean that your life is going to be easy. It does not mean that you will receive power. It does not mean that you will receive wealth. And it does not mean that things will go well for your family. However, God does bless those who are faithful to him. And those blessings may look different in everyone's life. And it may be a really long time before you see those blessings manifested. But it will happen. And so we are called to wait. We are called to wait on God's promises. It seems, when we look at this, like Joseph has it all. He has influence. He has power. He has money. Everything is finally going his way. But he doesn't have it all. And it isn't all going his way. And we can see that when we look at the names that he gives to his children. See, Moses reveals to us a little bit about the inner workings of Joseph, the inner workings of what is going on emotionally. Look in verse 51. What does Joseph name his firstborn? Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's household. When someone is constantly talking about forgetting something, that probably means that they actually think about it all the time. When you name your child, make me forget, it's almost like the only way that you know how to cope with the pain is through this self-induced amnesia. See, even though everything was going so well for Joseph, it didn't change the fact that he had been stolen from his father that he was apart from his family and his people, and that although he was very fruitful, verse 52, 
he was in the land of his affliction. Underneath all of the success, there is this sadness that is buried deep within him. And it would not be resolved yet. Over 20 years in total would actually pass before Joseph would ever see his family again. Joseph, however, was not the first in his line, in his family, to have to wait. Abraham, if you remember, was promised a son, but he had to wait years and years and years before Isaac was born. Jacob was stuck in a distant land serving Laban for years before he finally got to inherit the blessing that he had been promised. And here we have Joseph. Joseph had to wait for decades before the dreams that God showed him as a youth came true. And we too have to wait on God. But the very fact that we are waiting and not having to instigate allows us to view our one shot through a different lens. We can view it differently than the world because waiting on what God has promised means that it is already yours. You just don't have possession of it yet. Waiting means that you cannot miss out on it. And even if you think you've messed up your chance, it's still there. Waiting is hard. It can be emotionally exhausting, physically taxing, and maybe even feel like torture. But when we wait on God's promises, it's not open-ended. There is a conclusion. There is hope. And so we, we've got to ask, what does God promise next? I mean, that's what I would want to know. God promised Abraham, if you remember back to Genesis 12, that through him all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And we see that happening actually in this chapter on a minor scale. Because the great, great, great grandchild of Abraham has been risen up. And while all the lands were plagued with famine, because of Joseph, they were saved from a certain death. Joseph had to go through great humiliation so that God could exalt him and through him bless all the earth. Pharaoh told the starving people, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. Many years later, a group of servants at a wedding that happened to run out of wine went up to a woman named Mary. And she turned to them and she said, do whatever he tells you. Now that he was a man who suffered great humiliation so that God could exalt him and through him bless all of the earth. Doing so by bringing salvation from certain death. Joseph was a mere echo of Jesus Christ. The one through whom all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And that blessing that blessing applies to everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And so the promise that is for you, the promise that is true for you, is that one day there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain. That God will dwell with his people and that evil will be banished forever. Joseph was humiliated and exalted to save the peoples of the earth. Jesus was exalted, was humiliated and exalted so that the peoples of the earth might be saved. And God's promise to you is that you can be a part of that. You can step into that through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't have to worry about your one shot or your two moments because Jesus has already seized the moment and he has offered it to you.
so clean up there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are in control of all things. And that because of that, you have the authority, you have the ability, and you have the power to rescue us from our circumstances. And that you not only have the power, but that you have promised to do that for those who have faith in you. And I ask that we would take that to the bank and that we would allow that to change our lives and the ways that we live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.